Well, good evening again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 11. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. If you have your tablet or your phone, pull it out. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to be looking, starting in verse 21, because we made it all the way to verse 20 last week, or last time together, um, and so uh, two weeks ago. So Daniel eleven twenty one through 45 this evening. Let's pray. God, thank you for such a sweet time of worship. Lord, thank you for being our God, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Redeemer. Lord, we worship you, we praise you for who you are and the work you're doing in our lives. Lord, we thank you for... Uh, just removing the blinders of our eyes and letting us see our need for you and, and a Savior. And Lord, calling us and choosing us. And we thank you for our salvation. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, that you've given to us. That You know, you, you chose us. You've opened our eyes to salvation. But not only that, you've given us your word so we can learn how to know you better, Lord. And learn how to live this life pleasing to you. And to learn what's in store for us in the future. Uh, what a great privilege this is, Lord, to be spending this time this evening. We pray your blessing upon it, that you'd give us not only information, but application into our lives. We ask your blessing of our children as they're being taught the word downstairs as well. Uh, to you be the glory for all that we do this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are almost through with the book of Daniel. One more chapter to go after this evening. If you remember last time together, we took a trip through history At the time it was written, it was prophecy, but now it's history. And we were able to see each one of these events leading up to where we are uh, this evening. And if you recall, chapter 11 recounts many wars that take place during the time of the Gentiles, the kings of the north, Syria, and the the Antichrists and the kings of the south, down in Egypt, the Ptolemies, you know, they they were in constant state of turmoil against each other. And we looked at this last time together. They were like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Oh yeah, I'm gonna get you, I'll get you, and, and, and the problem with that is Israel was caught in the middle. And so that's really why it's recorded for us here, because Israel was caught in the middle. Sure there's other battles and things going on, but what affects God's people, Israel? Well now some years have passed, it's now 175 BC, and a new Antichrist comes on the scene, Antichrist Epiphanes. Now he's a very important person prophetically, Because he's a picture of one who's even more vile. One who will be coming into the nation of Israel called the Antichrist. And the remainder of this chapter deals with these two guys. First, Antichrist Epiphanes, and then we're going to jump to the Antichrist. First, this Antichrist Epiphanes, who is like the Antichrist, and in my opinion, he had a satanic link in his heart. Because he, like Caesar Nero, uh, like Adolf Hitler, this Antichrist Epiphanes had a very real hatred in his heart for the Jewish people. God loves Israel and has a wonderful plan uh, for the Jewish people, for the restoration with God through the true Messiah. Satan hates Israel. Hates the Jewish people and would like nothing better to destroy or deceive that nation. And there's this the, the visible war that we see that takes place and the animosity and hatred towards Israel. But there's an invisible war as well. Hatred and it's this demonic agenda against aimed, aimed at Israel. 
But like Nero and like uh, Hitler, Anarchist Epiphanies was so satanically supercharged that the things that he did, and the other ones as well, they go beyond human understanding. There are things that people do in our society today that are so humanly insane and so terribly horrifying that you have to attribute that to the power of Satan influencing a person's life. You hear about these horrific events, you go, that... Man, who comes up with it? It's got to be from, from you know, the phrase, from the pit of hell, from Satan. Well, let's pick it up now in verse 21. <clears throat> we read, And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. 175 B.C., Anarchus Epiphanes, who was a great public speaker, came in and with intrigue, as the King James puts it, with great trickery and flattery, seduced the people to acknowledge that, that he was the rightful king. Not just in the area of Syria, but also the area of Palestine or Israel as well. And when he came to power, and just like the last phrase of verse 22 tells us, he swept away or overthrew the prince of the covenant that is the high priest, the guy by the name of uh, Onius III. Now, Onius, was, he was a legitimate high priest and Anarchus Epiphanes booted him out and puts his own pseudo-priesthood in place. Now, the Jews, they get suspicious of this man becomes, because he comes in with peace, comes in with flattery, you know, and I am all for you. Look at verse 23. It says, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. And that would be Edom and, and Moab and all of Palestine up into Syria. He takes over all the rich places, all the, the good places there. And it says, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder spoil and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his skirts against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. So here is now Antichus Epiphanes. He's making war with the Egyptians. You know, the, 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 the renewing the old rivalry. He looks down south and says, you know, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to conquer those Egyptians. But he does so with treachery. Look at verse 26. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, that is Egypt. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. So what did he do? Well, Antichrist tricked some of these servants of Ptolemy, who is the leader of the Egyptians, to, to actually turn against their king. No, send in the, 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 the spy, so to speak, go undercover like the CIA or the gold KGB and, and do these tricks. And, 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 and here the king of the south is now taken down by his own people. They betray him and, and Atticus comes down like a flood and overpowers him. So they end up, as a result, sitting down at the peace table. As verse 24 says, the Egyptians who knows, you know, that they've been had. Look at verse 27. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. So they're lying at the peace table. What a surprise, huh? 
Happens all the time. Today as well. They set up these peace agreements, and yet it turns out to be totally bogus, and they're, they're both lying through their teeth. Well, now, Antichrist, he thinks he has the upper hand on the south, and some years have passed, and he decides again to go back down to the south, go back down further into Egypt. But look what happens, verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and go towards the south. But it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. The ships of Cyprus are Roman galleys. In other words, the Romans are coming. These Romans are very dominant, they're very strong, and they come down and they stop Antiochus Epiphanes right in his tracks. I mean, they literally meet Antiochus in the desert and these Roman soldiers draw a line in the sand and say, you're not going past this point right here. You step over this line towards Egypt and you're dead. Well, now he's going, oh, great, now, he's, now it's frustration. He's, he's going crazy because he wanted to go and wipe out the Egyptians, he can't, so what does he do instead? Well, since he can't go to Egypt, look at verse 30, that he shall be grieved, says, and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage, so shall he return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Stop there for a moment. So Antiochus Epiphanes was told by the Romans, one more step into Egypt and you're dead. It ticks him off, so he goes back up north, right into the area of Jerusalem, and he takes out his anger on the Jewish people. And when he arrived, 40,000 Jews are killed in cold blood. By the time his anger was, was vented, 100,000 Jews were slaughtered. Horrible, horrible. Now we've passed these, these phrases and terms rather easily, but, but think of that. We have probably, you know, just in the city of Springfield, I think we have, what, 160,000 people, you know, just in Springfield. Picture most of Springfield being wiped out. I, I mean, that's what's going on here. This one devastating act, women, men, children wiped out. Think about your neighbor just being wiped out, every person killed. This guy was so angry and so mad he began to go insane and he turned his hostility against the Jews. With, with, with that he slaughtered them and, and, and comes the abomination of desolation, which is he goes into the temple, he kills the pigs, smears the blood uh, all over the Jewish temple. He sets up this, this uh, idol, this, this statue of Jupiter Olympus, which is Zeus, uh, identified as his god and he demands the people to worship it. He immediately orders the Jewish temple sacrifices to cease all their rituals, Sabbaths, all their, their observances. He destroyed copies of the sacred writing, writings. He basically desecrated the temple. He also built a statue, an idol altar of Asherah, a sex symbol over the brazen altar. As well as these little pagan temples, little pagan temples were erected and incense offered everywhere to the Greek gods because it was the Greek influence that was prevalent at the time. And if you didn't go along with him, death, you put to death. But leaders to say when this happened, those who were faithful to God, they were pretty riled up. Look at verse 32. It goes on to say now, But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Man, stop right there. You might want to underline that verse. 
That is a, a great verse. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. People who know their God, they're not going to wimp out. They're not going to back down. They're not going to back away. People who know their God, no matter how big the enemy might be or how dark the day might seem, the people who know their God are going to stand strong in Him and do great exploits. Because you realize if God be for us, who can be against us? Greater is He that is us than He that is in the world. You know, I have found that the gutsiest people in the world are people who really know God. Those are not wimping down or backing down in the face of challenges. They don't give up. They press on. I know that, that my Lord is with me no matter how dark the night might be. I'm going to continue on uh, to do what He's called me to do. I mean, that's why we're here tonight. That's why we gather every week so we might know God as His people and do great exploits. It's a great scripture. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, this is referring to the uh, Maccabean revolt. Uh, because the desecration of the temple so incensed the people that a man named Judas Maccabee gathered together a group of zealots. They began to attack the Syrians in a guerrilla-type warfare. They defeated every Syrian contingency that was sent against them. And they finally retook the temple, purified the temple, which is celebrated every year by the Jewish people with the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights, as you may know it is called as Hanukkah, coming up. That's uh, how it developed. See, eventually they were able in 165 BC to push out the Syrians completely from Jerusalem and start temple worship once again to, to Yahweh, uh, to the one true God, cleansing the temple of this false worship of Zeus. And the legend goes that there was only one cruise of oil that would light the golden menorah for just one day, but miraculously it lasted eight days, and that's where Hanukkah, the festival of lights, was born. And because it lasted that long, that is why they call it the Feast of Lights, and that's why the Hanukkah, the menorah, has eight candlesticks representing those eight days, you know. And today most Jewish candle holders that you see are the, the, uh, the eight of the Hanukkah rather than the seven of the temple. And so they celebrate Hanukkah by lighting the menorah for eight nights, exchanging gifts and eating oily foods such as, you know, potato pancakes and jelly donuts. And they get to go to Krispy Kreme for eight days. I mean, uh, you know, that would be awesome. Oh, let's go get a greasy donut. So here's Daniel. He's told the people that, that know their God. Judas Maccabees and those Maccabean brothers will be strong and carry out great exploits. And they did. Now, verse 33. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Though when they fall, they should be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. At this point, we're leaving, uh, in Daniel's prophecy, we're leaving Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're jumping to the end. And we're going to see now a man commonly called the Antichrist. And the reason we have this leap here into the future is because this actually coincides with Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks determined upon Israel. Remember that, the first 69 weeks, Chuck, and then 483 years, remember that, then suddenly there's this break, there's a great gap that happens between the Messiah being cut off and, and he'd been rejected. From the 69th week to the 70th week, there's that last week still yet uh, to be to be happened. But in between there, that's called the church age. 
But one final seven-year period is still yet to take place. That's Daniel's 70th week and the time of great tribulation. Now, when will this church age be over? When will that 70th week begin, the great tribulation? Well, the church has to be out of here. It has to be raptured out of here first and foremost. Now, that helps to explain in Daniel 11 how you suddenly jump from Antiochus Epiphanes all the way to the end times still to come. See, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's a part of that first 69 weeks. And then... We go to the 70th week where the one who was viler than, than Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene and he is the Antichrist. Now in verse 36, we are talking about the Antichrist who is to come. This world leader who I, I personally believe he's alive and well in our age presently. And, and uh, here in Daniel 11 gives us some insight into him. We'll, we'll break these verses apart as we go. Look at verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. You catch that? This, this, this Antichrist, he's going to do what he wants to do. You know, it's just like Satan who said, I will be as the Most High God. I, I will do this. And that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven and become the devil Satan. So to the Antichrist, who's filled with Satan, will say, I will do what I want. Contrast that to Jesus Christ who said, not my will, but yours be done. Who said, I always do those things that please the Father. Antichrist, haughty, hey, I want what I want, I do what I want. Jesus, I do all those things that, that magnify, that, that glorify God. Verse 36 goes on. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. Now again, contrast that to Jesus in Philippians 2. He says he made himself, he was equal to God, humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. Antichrist, full of himself. Jesus Christ emptied himself. Verse 36, he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He's going to speak things, direct opposition to the things of God. There's certainly the spirit of Antichrist alive and well in our society today. We hear things all the time that are just in direct op, you know, opposition to the word of God, to, to God's, God's, you know, the things of God. And you hear these things and you, it just blows your mind. Don't they not know what God's Word said? They don't. This guy's going to be a, a, a great communicator. He's going to make Winston Churchill like a guy with a bad stutter. He's going to speak powerfully. He's going to be you know, saying things that are, again, direct opposition to the things of God, promoting gay marriage, promoting homosexuality, abortion, transgenderism, you know, worshiping of self, all these things. He'll claim to be God, but he's going to do so with great communication skills. Now, if you ever see those those clips, I think they've actually added color to some of them now, but you see Adolf Hitler uh, inspiring the Germans. You know, just, oh, the way he's talking, they're all listening to kid stuff compared to this Antichrist who comes on the scene, turning against the true and living God. Verse 36, it goes on, The Antichrist shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. So this world leader... We believe coming out of a, a, a European common market, European community, this great communicator, tremendously likable person, charismatic personality, whole world's gonna rally around this guy, he, he shall prosper, it says here. There's a lot of uh, churches that teach a prosperity doctrine. Oh, if you're godly, you have faith, you're gonna, you're gonna prosper. This guy's not gonna be godly at all, but he's gonna be prospering. 
uh, verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. That's an interesting verse because there's a lot of folks that, that, that Bible teaches that believe the Antichrist will be Jewish even though he'll come from Europe. Because of this, he would neither regard the God of his fathers, uh, uh, which is an expression used of the Jews. So again, most Bible teachers believe the Antichrist will be a Jew and yet living in Europe. goes on, nor the desire of women. This is where we get the, the, the idea that this man could you know, uh, pretty much be a homosexual, have no desire for woman at all. Verse 37, nor regard any God, for he, is, for he shall exalt himself above them all. He's his own God. No, people, you know, who say, I'm, I'm an atheist, uh, you know, I, I don't worship any God. They actually worship the dumbest God of all. They worship themselves. You know, only what I can understand and comprehend will I worship. And they worship their own intellect. Dumb, really dumb. In fact, that is what the word agnostic really means. Know nothing. Agnosco, the Latin word is ignoramus, actually. The word atheist in the Latin is ignoramus. In the Greek, it's, it's agnosco or agnostic. It means know nothing. So when a person says, I don't believe in any God, they're actually calling themselves an ignoramus. So there you have it. And I agree, they are. But, but Because the Bible says, the fool in his heart has said there is no God. So we see just these few insights about what the Antichrist will be like, what he will do. And, and you know, there's a lot of people who... who, who Try to find out who this guy is and, you know, it's not bad to speculate, but if that's all your, your focus, it's not good. You know, we read he's going to be this self-centered, good communicated Jewish homosexual living in Europe. Okay, fine. And listen, I'd rather be looking for Jesus Christ than for Antichrist any day of the week, which I believe the scripture teaches that we will be raptured out of here before the Antichrist is even revealed. But look at what else this, this guy does. Besides lifting himself up, this is fascinating. Verse 38. But in their place he shall honor of God a fortress. The one God he's going to honor is out of fortresses. Or another translation would be weaponry. Weapons. It goes on. And a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. He's going to pay to this God... Gold, silver, precious stones. In other words, his God's an expensive God. It's going to cost him something. Do you know how much it costs for, for effective weaponry in military today? How much you know, we spend in the United States alone on, on, on military things? Man, if that this person's God, he's going to pay. You know, the cost, I, I just looked this up, for one B-2 spirit bomber is $2.1 billion. That's each. billion. There you go. I'll take two. But here the Antichrist is willing to pay this God of fortresses, this God of munitions with with many precious stones and and pleasant things. Verse 39. Thus he shall act against the strong fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance his glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So he's going to use a god of munitions to control and dominate the world. You know, he originally conquered with his, his charisma, 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 his strong flattery, his talks of peace. Oh yeah, what a great guy. And now he begins to flex his muscle militarily. Verse 40, he's now in control. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Now the south, as we have seen in the past, are the Egyptian people. And now we'll begin at this time to wage war against the Antichrist. 
What time is this? Well, we're talking about the middle of the Great Tribulation period. We'll see that the Egyptians will say, hey, we don't want this guy to rule over us anymore, this Antichrist, this guy who's now you know, located in Jerusalem. Now, poor Israel, they've been the battleground for this in the past, and, and now in the future they're going to be the battleground. They're caught in the middle once again. Now, the Antichrist responds to this attack. Look at verse 40. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, which is Jordan, and the prominent people of Ammon. So Jordan will not be taken by the Antichrist, though Israel will. Interesting because the Jews at this point will actually flee for their protection. They'll go to the rock city of Petra, many believe, where they'll be preserved by God for three and a half years during this last half of the Great Tribulation period as the wrath of God is being poured out upon this earth. Edom, or Jordan, escapes over. He moves towards Egypt, verse 42. He shall stretch out his hand against these countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So that's all happening. But then there's a news flash. Uh-oh, look at verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Now, Early on, if you've studied prophecy before, you know that the Russians, as well as a conglomerate of Arab nations, come at the very beginning or, or, or right before the tribulation unfolds. This invasion, Ezekiel chapter 37, 38, 39, in the end wipes out five, six, God wipes out five, six of the army on the hills of Israel. But now Russia's regrouped at least three and a half years later, and now they're coming down again, and the people of the world are realizing the Antichrist is not who he said he was, so now they want to destroy him. Now at this point, the Antichrist goes, well, I'm in trouble because out of the east I hear news. Well, Revelation 9 tells us what that news is. The king of the east is coming with an army of 200 million men. Now when Revelation 9 was written, John must have said, that can't be true. I mean, uh, we don't even have 200 million people on the earth right now. How can there be a, a 200 million man army coming on uh, like this? It's impossible. That is until early in the 1960s when Radio Peking announced and astonished the world that they now have a militia and an army that can be mobilized in one month up to 200 million men if they so please. They actually used that number. And all of a sudden people who are reading and studying prophecy in the Bible are going, that's very interesting, very fascinating. And king in the east, the Chinese are boasting that they can have an army of 200 million. You know, the Chinese have over 1.3 billion people. Largest population in the world, second to India and then the United States. Out of every, you know, one out of every four people live in, in China. That's pretty crowded over there. So they got this army and, and they're going to be coming. And so it's not just the Russians, but here comes China. No wonder the Antichrist is troubled. And he goes, man, this is going to be bad. So therefore he goes in verse 44, Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Basically he says, I'm going to attack any country. It doesn't matter because I'm just, I'm, I'm mad. I mean, I'm going to attack everybody. Now we understand from other passages that his anger is still against the Jews. Verse 45, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So he's going to set up his headquarters right in Israel between the sea and this glorious mountain are called the Valley of Megiddo, 
where there's going to be this final battle unfolding, the battle of Armageddon. So here comes the armies of the world converging to destroy the Antichrist. Verse 45 says that he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So no one's going to, going to help him, it says, even though he's got the munitions, his weapons. Looking back at verse 40, and notice what it says. Look at the weapons being used. Chariots and horsemen and ships. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says in the valley of Armageddon the blood shall flow up to the horse's mane? Is that something that's just figurative or is it really only going to be left as, as horses and swordsmen? You know, there's a real concern today that there are certain types of attacks that can actually take out all electrical capabilities. You know, you've heard of this, the EMP blast. You know, an EMP pulse could take out all electric current running through in any particular area once a bomb is detonated and when it hits, you know, any metal that's connected to any electricity it's using, it's destroyed. According to Jim Wilson, a writer from Popular Mechanics magazine, he wrote this concerning the E-bomb many years ago. In the blink of an eye, electromagnetic bombs can throw civilization back 200 years and terrorists can build them for $400. Knock out electric power, computers and telecommunication, and you've destroyed the foundation of modern society. In the age of third world sponsored terrorism, the E-bomb is the great equalizer. It's just a suggestion. Could it be that when things get really bad, that it's because we've destroyed all electronic capabilities and we get down to it and now we're just left with, with horses? You know, I, I, you know I, I mean, it could happen. You know, we spend billions and billions of dollars on, on space shuttles and satellites and, and sophisticated weaponry and at the end none of it would, would be able to work. You know, or those in, in IT, you know, the computer industry, it's all down. It's all down. Why? Because these weapons did that? That's a possibility. Maybe it's not just figurative. It could actually be. That wouldn't surprise me. But in any case, we get all these armies converging now in the Valley of Megiddo. And again, verse 45, and no one will help him. That's the Antichrist. But we know they're ready to strangle the Antichrist. And, and, and what is left of his horses, that, that suddenly the people of Israel being caught up in the middle of this whole world war, about to be destroyed in the carnage, they look up, and all of a sudden they see one riding in on a white horse. Behold, he's coming with ten thousands of his saints, Jude 1.14 says. Guess who's coming and guess who's coming with them? It's Jesus and we're coming with them. Right when Armageddon is about to climax and it looks like this whole world, particularly Israel, is going to be devastated, there in the battle of Megiddo, Jesus comes back. And then we know from the prophets that one of the craziest things in the history of the world will take place when suddenly all these armies quit fighting each other and they turn and start firing away at the Lord. But that's really smart, isn't it? <laughs> oh, they're fighting each other. Oh, the Lord. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to fight the Lord. Brilliant. You know, they don't have a prayer. <laughs> Jesus comes back. Listen, it's going to happen this way. You may say, Tom, how do you know that? Well, because the first 35 verses of Daniel 11 here, were, 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 there were 135 prophecies fulfilled exactly as the angel said to Daniel. So in the same way, the remaining verses of Daniel will be unfolded perfectly. Bible prophecy will be fulfilled. Now my interpretation of events may be, be off a little bit. My, my failure to read or see the order may be off a little bit. But scripture will be fulfilled. And if you really study prophecy and study history together, you'll see that the way the prophecy has been filled already has been to, exactly to the point. And God has recorded it for us 
with, with 100% accuracy. And he warns us that the time is short and we need to make sure that we have our hearts right with him. Our priorities need to be in focus. They need to be right. The forecast is clear and right. The lesson we can learn this evening is that God is in control. And God will let man go on in his ways and fighting each other. But there's going to come a point when he says, okay, enough is enough. And he's going to step in. And we know this because history has proven it. God's word has said it. And because God is faithful when he, when he, when he forecasts the future, we know with 100% accuracy this will take place. You know, that happens, that, that, that God becomes to us really reliable. Really, really reliable. I mean, if you have a hard time with trusting with God with something that you're dealing with right now, right coming up in the future, all you've got to do is look back and go, my God, you've been so faithful in my past. You've taken care of me in this situation and that situation, Lord. I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I know you're going to be right there with me. And I know you're going to direct me. And in so doing, that builds up your faith so you can trust God every day. Jesus told his apostles in Matthew 24, 25, Behold, I have told you in advance. Peter uh, says, proclaimed in 2 Peter 1.19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. God's word, God tells us in events, one day he's going to put an end to sin and, and, and he's going to come back and he's going to uh, just bring us with him and it's going to be glorious. One thing we know we take away from the book of Daniel, we got the last chapter next week, but God is faithful. And so knowing that makes me want, okay, Lord, what more can I do to invest in the future? Knowing that you're going to come back soon, what more can I do to get the gospel out? What more can I do to serve the people that, that I know and I love and, and bless them until that time that he takes us home? Let's pray.